0: If you would open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We've been studying the Ten Commandments and today we come to the tenth and last commandment. If you look at verse number 17, Exodus 20, verse number 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It is the final commandment, but in many ways it stands out for a number of reasons. One author has observed this commandment is unique in that it prohibits a thought rather than an action. That is to say, it deals with the internal life of the person rather than external actions. And if you consider that the 6th through the ninth commandments, we find that they seem to deal with the external. That is, what can be observed. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And yet the 10th seems to deal with what is not observable. You shall not covet. How do you know if somebody else is coveting? That is you may covertly covet. You can covet and people not know, in fact, that you are coveting them. On the other hand, your coveting could be quite observable if it results in speech or in actions. We'll come to that in a bit. I think I agree somewhat with the author who sees it as a unique commandment, but in reality, as we've seen, even these commandments Like, do not murder, do not steal. While they have an external aspect, there's also something that is quite internal about them. With regard to murder, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So if you murder, you'll be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. So you kill someone you're subject to judgment if you're angry without cause you're subject to judgment what about the first five commandments are they are they purely external Um, as we've seen the first five commandments deal with the true nature of things this is the way things are there is only one God I am the Lord your God you shall have no other gods before me God is a spirit You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. Third, God's name reveals who he is, so you're not to use his name lightly. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Fourthly, God created time as a gift, so we are to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And fifthly, God created life, our being, as gift, and so we are to honor our father and mother. Indeed, these have a very external aspect to them, but they arise from an internal aspect. As we have seen in our study of the Gospel of Mark, um, if you are a child, if you are to have something that you're, you're to give to your parents, to take care of them in their old age, but you say, oh no, this is korban, this is something I've set aside for the Lord, then you don't have to take care of your parents. And why would you do that? Unless there's something within you that wants to hold on to something rather than sharing it with your parents. One could argue that the first five commandments deal with our relationship to God, that we are to love the Lord our God. And the second five deal with our relationship with our neighbor. We are to love our neighbors ourselves. And by the way, neighbor shows up in the ninth and tenth commandment. We are not to covet what belongs to our neighbor, we're told in the tenth. Life is a gift. Therefore we are not to take the life of another person. Marriage is a gift which we are to treasure and not destroy. Therefore we are not to commit adultery. What belongs to another is a gift to that person so we should not steal. The truth is a gift so we should not give false testimony against your neighbor. By the way, it has been argued that truth is the basis of any given civilization, which people say, well, I don't know if I quite agree with that. It seems somewhat counterintuitive. Um, but if you think of like the mafia or some type of criminal enterprise, there is the expression honor among thieves. That is to say, there has to be a certain amount of truth telling even between criminals if they're going to keep their enterprise going. They do, in fact, have rules with regard to truthfulness and how they treat each other. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, you may remember Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Makes sense. Um, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that the, you may be the sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So there is some sense in which people treat each other with truthfulness, with respect, maybe even affection. Uh, So if we do this, we shouldn't say, oh, well, I'm I'm a good person. No, no you're simply doing, I think, what is common to the human condition. But, having said that, we do have enemies. People generally have enemies. Those that they don't want to treat with affection. Those they don't want to tell the truth to. Those that they, in fact, may want to murder. As we've seen in this series, each of these commandments is necessary and critical, and they build on each other. The first is the foundation. And that's why I've argued that people who want the Ten Commandments in a courtroom, yeah, I don't think that really works because the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. Is that true of people in the courtroom? If it isn't, then maybe that plaque shouldn't be up on the wall. But the Tenth Commandment, the first is the foundation. The Tenth is sort of the linchpin, the thing that holds it all together. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In Romans 7, Paul writes about the law and its place in the life of the Christian. He says that it is the law that reveals what sin is and what our sins are in particular. So he starts out by saying, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. The law tells us, don't do this. And when I break the law, I've committed sin. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead." Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, uh, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So that which is to lead us into life, actually leads us into death. And of all the 10 commandments, and we've now looked at the nine, we're looking at the 10th, why does Paul choose the 10th commandment? Do not covet. Why is it that this one is the one that put him to death, if you wish? Well, it is the 10th, as we will see, that is the breaking, or it is the point of breaking each and every one of God's commandments so let's look at them, things to consider. As I've said, first of all, some people have suggested that the f- this is the first commandment to deal with the external, What's uh, the internal, what is in your heart. One author has written, one thing we have enjoyed about the commandments is their direct basic simplicity so wonderfully tied to the concrete stuff of everyday life. Here in this final commandment, it is as if we have away from the externals of life, we've gone away from the externals of life into the dark regions of the human heart, the territory where Jesus claimed that most of the really bad things in the world are, ha- are hatched. So far it's like, well, it's all external. I haven't done these things. But now we come to the tent that is internal. Um, and that's where Jesus said sin comes from. From Mark chapter 9, which we studied several months ago, Jesus deals with the matter of clean versus unclean. The Pharisees say, your disciples are unclean. They're not washing their hands ritually before they eat. Jesus responds, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of, the men's, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Unclean. On some level, this should not have been news to the disciples. In Jeremiah, we are told the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? In Genesis 6, before the flood, We read, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Disciples should have had a clue. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. So sin starts in the heart. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Um, washing your hands is not going to get rid of this. Washing your body is not going to get rid of these things. It starts in the heart. It starts with coveting. The second thing to consider is, should we, in fact, as God's people, think of internal versus external? That the first nine are external and the last one is internal. Internal. Yeah, I don't think so. Some have wrongly suggested that this command only applies to actions. And so they want all ten to be purely external. Uh, the actions that arise out of coveting. So if you covet something, you might steal it. So then you've broken the commandment. Okay. Um, I, I see this as what the Pharisees were doing. It's a form of legalism. It's reducing everything to external actions. We saw this when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, and I've referred to it several times in going through the Ten Commandments. Um, Jesus sought to correct a misunderstanding about the Ten Commandments in this regard. Beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus looks at six specific areas And what he does is he contrasts what the people have been taught by the Pharisees and the experts in the law and what the law actually says. But before he gets to those six areas, he lays the foundation. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. So This is not some new doctrine that Jesus is presenting. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, It might have seen in this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is presenting a new system of morality, that he's presenting a new interpretation of the Ten Commandments or of the law. So he's sort of establishing his own law versus following what we find in the Old Testament, that he's abolishing it. And Jesus makes it very clear, this is not what he is doing at all. Jesus does not see the law as superficial or insufficient. Jesus is not now presenting a deeper understanding of the law. What he is doing is in fact confirming what the law says. It is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who have made the law purely external. It's all your actions. And Jesus says, listen, we need to look at the heart. We shouldn't somehow just say it's your actions because what begins in the heart comes out in our actions. And so to speak of internal versus external I think is not helpful at all. Um, Jesus said not the least stroke of the pen, not the smallest letter, will disappear. The law is here. It is durable. It is what God intends for us to follow as we live our lives. So it begins in verse 21 where he gives these six contrasts. And he says... A number of times, uh, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, or you have heard that it was said, it has been said, it was said, and then Jesus gives his, uh, well, he explains what the law really means. Jesus doesn't say, it was written, and now let me tell you something different. What he is saying is, these teachers You go to synagogue, the Pharisees are there, the teachers of the law, and they explain the law to you and they've missed the boat because they're speaking purely of the external, just of your actions. And Jesus says, this is simply not the case. He is intending for the people to understand what the law really says, not what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law say. So it's not a new doctrine. It's not a new teaching, it's not a new interpretation, it is a confirming of what the law is all about. And if we say, well, the Tenth Commandment is internal and the rest are external, we've created this dichotomy that is not helpful, I think ultimately is wrong. All of our actions begin in our hearts. There's a connection we can't say, well, that, you know, that's just my action. It, it didn't really have anything to do with me internally. No, it begins in the heart, and then it comes out in our actions. So Jesus came, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches the gospel of the kingdom, which is based on the law of God. He's bringing the people back to the truth where they have been led astray. What Jesus does here is not to say, keep the law and you'll be saved. He's saying, because you are God's people and you are redeemed, this is how you're supposed to live. The third thing that we should consider is that in this 10th commandment, we discover what the commandments are all about. We are to love the Lord our God. We are to love our neighbors ourself. You see, we were created to love and to desire. The fundamental question of Christian discipleship, if we are followers of Jesus, is not what do you know? What do you believe? I think this is what we would traditionally think. But what is it that you want? What do you want? We are what we want, and desire comes from the heart. Our wants, our longings, our desires are the core of who we are as people. But let's back up a minute, and this is where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law got into trouble. Some might imagine that you can keep the Ten Commandments, you can keep the law of God, without love and without desire. And God will not have it. We are to obey him. Yes. That's a given. But we are to do so out of desire. Out of love. That we love God. And so we will do what it is that he has called us and commanded us to do. And the tenth commandment is there to remind us of that. Lest we think, oh, okay, here are the rules I've got these nine rules, I'm okay, I think I can keep these. It's like, no, the 10th one is like, there needs to be love. We should have no other gods because we love God. We are not to make an image of him because we love him as he is. We're not to misuse his name because we love him. We are to have a day of rest because God created that for us And because we love him, we will do what he says. And we are to honor our parents because, in fact, they gave us life. God, through them, gave us life. And we are to love him. Obedience, apart from love, is actually not obedience at all. Augustine put it this way we imitate whom we adore. The person or persons we adore, that's who we imitate. And the law was given that we might adore God, that we might imitate and follow his way. But let's talk more about desire, the place of desire. Aquinas, in writing on this, has said that the reason for this commandment is that our desire has no limits. That is, it is boundless. And our love is boundless, our desire is boundless, because it is directed, it is to be directed toward God. He is a source of love. We love God because he first loved us. And our love is to be directed toward him. Our desires are to be directed toward him. Augustine is known, I think, perhaps more famously for his statement in the Confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We only find rest when our thoughts and our loves, our desires are directed toward God. But we are restless because we covet, because there are things we want that we don't have and we wish that we did. If you go through the first nine commandments, consider it behind the breaking of each one is a disordered desire. That is bad desire Wrong desire Instead of desiring God We desire something else We heard this in our prayer of confession today And think back a bit If you still have it You can look at it You're to have no other gods before me But we place other things On the throne of our hearts We covet other gods Okay You shall not make for yourself A carved image But we remake you Into the God we want you to be We want God to be The way we want him to be God has said this is who I am and we're like yeah I think I would prefer something else I covet having another God you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain and why would you do that to reinforce your position and so we long to be the center of attention remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy yeah yeah we prefer to earning our salvation rather than resting in God Behind each of the first nine commandments is this coveting. We want something other than what God has commanded us to do. And then we come in the prayer of confession to the final, the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, but we act as if the whole world owes us. Behind each commandment is coveting. Just to back up a bit about the ninth commandment, that we are not to bear false witness or lie. Uh, I talked about this, and this is a brief review. One author has written a number of reasons why people lie. I just mentioned some. To impose my ideological beliefs, to prove that I am or I was right, to void responsibility, to attract the lion's share of attention. I want people to look at me, to ensure that everyone likes me. And then later on he writes, the capacity of the rational mind to deceive, manipulate, scheme, trick, falsify, minimize, mislead, betray, prevaricate, deny, omit, rationalize, uh, bias, exaggerate, and obscure is so endless, so remarkable, that centuries of pre-scientific thought concentrating on clarifying the nature of moral endeavor regarded it as positively demonic." Yeah, he's the father of lies, okay, we don't want to tell the truth. We would rather say something that makes us look good or make somebody look bad. So we don't want to tell the truth, we covet, we want us to look good. Something else about desire, desire is contagious. We desire according to the desires of another because all desire is imitative. Have you heard of influencers? They want to influence us. We want to be like them. We see what they're wearing, where they're traveling to, the hotels they're staying in, all these various things. Desire is, in fact, contagious. We want something because somebody else has it or somebody else wants it. The result is that our desires are disordered. It's a a disorder that we learn from one another, and oftentimes it can even lead to violence. We think we desire what our neighbor has, and anything that our neighbor has that we don't have diminishes us. The old expression, keeping up with the Joneses, it's not so much that. It's, if I don't, then I'm diminished. I'm lessened as a person. They have something that I don't and I am diminished, at least in my own eyes. So we envy, we covet. It's been said that the socialist calls capitalism legalized greed. The capitalist calls socialism legalized envy. And there's some truth, I think, to both statements because whenever you organize people into society, It actually takes two people, but let's say in a society, if one person has something that another doesn't, then coveting is what emerges. There is envy and perhaps even greed. In our society, in the time in which we live, there are forces that abet this resistance to the Tenth Commandment. We hear the Tenth Commandment and we're like, Yeah, I I don't think I want to keep that. Or we trick ourselves into thinking, oh, well, I, I don't covet. Advertising creates desire. One author has observed the surest way to drive someone crazy in modernity is to ask the pressing question, what do you really want? It turns out that we don't know what we want other than that we want it and we want it now. And advertising drives this. Apart from the Creator, we are empty. We are hungry. And we are omnivorous. We will devour anything that is available to us. Living when and where we do, we have a lot. We are not poor. We are probably richer than any society has been ever in human history. And we have the capacity to acquire even more than we already have. Some have called this a sickness, uh, affluenza. Not influenza, but affluence, affluenza. It's not a sickness, it's sin. It's breaking the 10th commandment. It's saying, I want, I'm not sure what I want, but I know I want it and I want it now. Whatever somebody else has, yeah, that's what I want. And it drives us, and our desires are disordered. The image that comes to mind for me as I was preparing the sermon is, if you had um, a canal made of, let's say, two very, very long pieces of wood, and the water flows through this canal, if you take the wood away, then the water goes everywhere. If our desire is not channeled toward God, we take these things away, then our desires go anywhere and everywhere. And we find ourselves wanting and desiring things that really we shouldn't. If if we should have them, God would give them to us. But then our desire for God is lessened and lessened to the point that sometimes it disappears altogether. The water, the love and the channel The desire toward God is gone And it scatters all over the place It's disordered And we find that we have broken the 10th commandment And along with it Every other commandment James tells us if you break one commandment You're guilty of breaking them all If you break the 10th commandment You certainly are guilty of breaking the rest Here as we come to the end of our series, I've mentioned something at the beginning that I, I want to repeat now because I think it's critical. Grace comes before law. That is to say, God delivered Israel out of Egypt, and then he gave them the law at Mount Sinai, okay? He didn't give them the law in Egypt and then deliver them. He delivered them first, and then he gave them the law. Redemption comes before the commandments. Israel was in bondage. Now they have been redeemed. They have been set free. They've been brought to Sinai, and now God tells them how they are to live. In Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God said, I brought you out of slavery to myself. Is there a better picture of salvation? God has freed us from sin and brought us to himself. And then the first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. For those who have been redeemed, the Ten Commandments tell us how it is we are supposed to live. It's been argued, and I mentioned this earlier in this series, the commandments are not a guidelines for humanity in general. They are a countercultural way of life for those who know who they are and whose they are. Their function is not to keep American cultural, cultural uh, culture running smoothly, but rather to produce a people who are, in our daily lives, a sign, a signal, a witness that God has not left the world to its own devices. <clears throat> we have the Decalogue because we have been delivered and redeemed by God. We have been redeemed, but our desires are not what they should be. They're not always directed toward the creator, the one who loved us and now we love in return. Whether it be cracks in the dike, holes in the wall, that desire which is to be toward God now goes out into other places. And we find ourselves desiring things we should not. We are told at the end of the Ten Commandments that we are not to covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Anything. Disorder, desire has marked the human race ever since Eve took the fruit from the tree. This is from Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. Our desires have been messed up ever since. Instead of obeying in love, we look at obedience as, boy, it's really hard. God has all these things he wants me to do. Our desires go elsewhere. God told them not to eat from the tree, but she saw that, boy, it, it looks good and I do want to be wise. And so she took it and ate it, and we have been in trouble ever since. Desire is something God created in us, okay? It's not as though desire is evil of itself. God created us with love. He loved us, we love him back. I mean, we are made in the image of God, okay? Um, But if it is not directed toward the creator, then it's going to just go all over the place. And don't be surprised where it could end up. Where we see people doing things, we're like, well, I would have never expected something like that from such a person. Or even in our own hearts, we find ourselves desiring certain things, and we're like, where did that come from? I can't believe that I had such a thought. Well, if your desire is not toward God, then it's gonna, it's gonna go wherever it can. And when it leaves where it's supposed to be, directed toward God, it will never, never be satisfied. It will never be satisfied. It cannot. We only find rest in the one who created us. It was fairly early in their career, but the Rolling Stones wrote a a really profound song. I don't know if they even realized it. Can't get no satisfaction. That is the theme song of the human race, apart from God. You will not get satisfaction. You cannot. There's a children's story that illustrates this. You're probably familiar with it. By Laura Joffe Numeroff. It's entitled, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Do you know this story? If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk. When you give him the milk, he'll probably ask you for a straw. When he's finished, he'll ask for a napkin. And it goes on and on and on. Once the mouse is given the cookie, he asks for more. Ends up to a series of additional requests. Each event that occurs makes the mouse want something new. It's not satisfied creating a seemingly endless stream of demands. By the way, at the end of the book, um, he, he's, he's drawn a picture, he puts it on the refrigerator, he needs some scotch tape, he needs tape for that. And then when he looks at the refrigerator, he realizes that he's thirsty, so he, gets a gla- he asks for a glass of milk, and then he asks for a cookie. So you just come full circle. That's the human race. Never satisfied And the 10th commandment is to put us in our place, not to be cruel to us. It's not cruel. I mean, do you want to live a life of no satisfaction, endless dissatisfaction? Or do you want to find rest in in God? Like Augustine said, the soul is restless until we find rest in God. And the 10th commandment tells us precisely that. I hope that you've learned I hope that you've benefited I know that I have From the study of the Ten Commandments That The God who made us Who loves us Knows how we should live And he tells us This is how you should live He sent his son to redeem us Now we are new people And as new people This is how we're supposed to live But everything in the culture around us says no. You should have other gods. And if you need to use God's name every once in a while to make your point, then you can use God's name in vain. And you don't have to honor your parents because the government will take care of them. And It goes on and on. God has called us to be his people. Just as surely as he rescued Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, he has rescued us. And now we are to live lives of loving obedience. Not just obedience, but loving obedience. We love him because he first loved us. Let's pray together. Our Father, in some ways, these words sound so strange and foreign to us. Why is it that we should not want what somebody else has? Particularly if what they have is a good thing. We are surrounded, we are bombarded with images, with sounds, commercials, advertising, billboards that tell us that we should want certain things. And they pull our desires away from you. And when our desires are not directed toward you, then we become so restless, so dissatisfied, so unhappy. I thank you that you have redeemed us, just as you did Israel out of Egypt. And you have not left us to try to figure out on our own how it is we're supposed to live. You've given us your law, the Ten Commandments. This is how we are to live. To know that you are our God. You are a spirit. We're not to take your name in vain. We're not to use it or misuse it. We are to recognize that rest is a gift from you, as life is a gift from you through our parents. We are not to take that gift from someone else. We are not to destroy the treasure of marriage in adultery. We are not to take from someone else what possessions they may have. And we are to to love the truth. Rather than speaking the language of lies, the language of the devil. Above all, we are not to covet. We're not to want to desire that which you have not given us but to desire you. Jesus told us that we are to seek first the kingdom of heaven, then all these things will be added. And I don't know that we always believe that. There is a restlessness in us sometimes that is a result of disorder desire. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. By the blood of the Lord Jesus, cleanse us May we live lives of love and desire and obedience. The lives to which we've been called. Here we are, the first day of a new year. By your grace, we are here. And we ask that you would carry each one of us through the coming days. We don't know what the days will bring, but you do. But our, our focus is to be on you and not on what is uh, is coming in the future if we focus on the future then I think there will be this restlessness but we are to rest in you thank you for your love for sending your son for saving us from our sins May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.